I invite you all to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, and we'll continue our series this week, uh, resume, I should say, our series this week in that uh, book. And as we uh, turn there, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 17. Uh, We were reminded last week and encouraged in a a myriad of ways and wonderfully by Dr. Medeiros, our uh, guest mission speaker, of the call that each one of us has to reach out to those around us. And really to, to not just be a church with missions, but to be a church in mission. Uh, not just as individuals to support missionaries, but to live missionally. To think about ourselves as called by God in that way. And as we turn to these verses today, then, what I want to focus in, there's certainly a reminder here of that same theme we heard presented wonderfully last week. I want us to consider what it is that holds us back. One of the biggest things that holds us back from really being able to engage, to initiate, to reach out, to connect with those who are lost, who are caught up in sin, and who are broken in our world. And that is a glaring spiritual disease that, probably all of us face in some form or fashion that of our own self-righteousness. Our own self-righteousness. Jesus challenges this in these verses and invites us uh, not only to be helped in our ability to connect with those around us who are lost and hurting, but to be able to connect with the living God more deeply by realizing our struggle in this area. So I invite you to stand with me then as I read aloud and you read along silently. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined, Jesus did, at the table at his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You may be seated. And let me pray again for our time in God's Word. Father, Your Word, we are reminded in the Scriptures, uh, pierces into bone and marrow and joints. It goes deeply into our lives. And we ask, Lord, that it would do that today, that you would cut through the thick skin of the self-righteousness that we are all probably plagued with in some way or another. And, Lord, that you would open us up so that we might experience your grace more deeply. We want that. 
And also, Lord, that we might be that much more effectively used for your kingdom purposes in this world to reach those who you desire for us to reach. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to open with a question this morning. And it is a thorny one. If Jesus Christ attracted notorious sinners and repelled the righteous, why is it that we, including myself, in the American Evangelical Church, so often repel notorious sinners and only attract the righteous? Did you get the question? Let me ask it again because it's a big one for us and it's what we're going to camp on this morning. If Jesus Christ attracted, drew in and reached out and connected with notorious sinners and instead often repelled the very righteous people of his day, why is it that we do the exact opposite so often? Now, I understand, and we'll include this in the program, I'll say this right off the bat, what John says in his gospel, that those who are in darkness love the darkness often and hate the light. And certainly what Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians, that uh, depending on where a person is positioned to God, that sometimes the gospel is a pleasing aroma, smells wonderful, and sometimes it's a foul stench. So I understand that there's an issue on the receiving end of things for the grace of God. But it's probably not simply a one-way street when we think about it, is it? Could it also be that we who are called to engage and connect with those who are stuck in all manner of sin and wrestling perhaps with the same sins that we're wrestling with in our own lives, could it be that we're called to connect and that our self-righteousness is putting up a huge barrier? Self-righteousness, you know, is a little bit like bad breath, isn't it? You don't realize you've got it, but everybody else around you does. Jesus is going to challenge us with this this morning. And he challenges us in this way. If you want to follow along in the worship guide, you can. There's a few quotations I'll be noting later that you might want to look at. The main idea I I believe God has for us this morning is that Jesus comes for the unrighteous. So we ought to reject, we ought to seek to get out of our life as much as possible the self-righteousness that's so prevalent. And seek the unrighteous. If you know anything about the tax collectors, if you ever heard a sermon about it or just generally familiar with the Bible, you know that these tax collectors in Jesus' day weren't just sort of an annoying uh, bureaucrat holed up in an IRS building. My apologies if you work for our federal government. That's not what they were. These folks were despised. And in fact, when you contrast them, you know, we're just a couple of chapter, chapter or so away 
from when Jesus called the other disciples. You know, the, the plain people, the fishermen. Those guys were plain, the other disciples. Now Jesus is calling this guy, he's pagan. Those guys were mediocre. This guy would have been viewed as just plain mean. The tax collectors lined their own pockets from what they took from people. So their whole practice was kind of inherently sinful, deceitful, unjust. That was part of the program of being a tax collector. They didn't even let them in the synagogue. And the despising extended not only to their themselves, but also to their families, to their children as well. Very disliked people. So much so that like a number in our culture that feel repelled and maybe are caught up in various sin, they, they, they found other people that they could sort of commiserate with. And Jesus says that. you got the tax collectors and the sinners. You ever notice they're always together in the Bible. These folks found some other people that at least they could hang out and feel some level of comfort with. I don't know that it it would have quite gone this far, but to help get us in the mindset to understand how despised these people were, uh, think about the kind of visceral reaction that the word pedophile brings to us. And I think you could almost apply that same degree to the term tax collector in the ancient world. It brought with it automatic disdain and distaste. Naturally, one of the things these verses invite us to consider, folks, is that if we're in the gospel, if we receive salvation, and we may be young in it, or we may have been in it for a number of years, who are the people around us that we find so distasteful, so difficult, so easy to judge, that we can't bring ourselves to really move towards them and connect in any way. Maybe it's that person from whatever that other political party is that you can't stand. Maybe it's the atheistic professor down the street that seems to have a real edge against the Christian message. Maybe it's the homosexual couple. Maybe it's the high-wheeling-and-dealing CEO that seems to have his whole life all together and doesn't seem to be interested in spending time with you or me. Maybe it's the serial divorcee. Whoever it is around us that we see and know in our family, in our relationships, that we think there's no way they could be reached, and maybe we even just have some distaste towards them if we're in our heart of hearts. We know we're not supposed to feel that way. We do. This is who Jesus is telling us we're called to, and he's reminding us He's not condoning anything that's being done. He's not saying the tax collector's fine where he is. Remember, he calls him out of it. He says, get out of this sinful lifestyle and come to me. But he's reminding us what Luke 19.10 says about Jesus, that he comes to seek and to save who? The lost. The lost. What keeps us from doing this? A lot of things do, but let's camp out on the one that Jesus brings to the forefront today, this issue of self-righteousness. Look with me at verse 17. The Pharisees are asking him about this question again. We don't really like the Pharisees too much in our day either. They don't sit well with us. But guess what? They were very popular in Jesus' day. They were looked highly upon. They were the lay leaders of the church, and they were respected folks. So these Pharisees come, and they want to know, What's the deal? Why is he associating with these 
people. And Jesus says in verse 17, those who are well don't need a doctor, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Is he trying to tell the Pharisees that there's really two classes of people in the world? Those who need Jesus and those who don't? No, he's trying to get right in their face and say, I came for sinful people, for people who realize that they need me, that they need my grace. He's reminding them that the great blessing and benefit of being all caught up in sin is that at least you realize that you need the grace of God, that you're desperate for it and hungry for it. And what a dangerous thing it is for us folks to be blinded by our self-righteousness and be kept from deeper dependence on Christ and greater love for those around us by our own pride and self-righteousness. The evil one, I don't think he cares too much, to be honest with you folks. If he can keep us away from God by keeping us caught up in our own self-righteousness, patting ourselves on the back, standing on other people's neck and feeling good because we're six inches higher, if he can keep us caught up in that, it's just as good as us being caught up in some, some life of obvious, notorious debauchery. It's all good by him if he keeps us away from trusting, depending, and seeing the beauty of grace and mercy. You know, it's not a uh, new thing either. You think about these verses. Remember that guy in the Old Testament, Jonah? We, we love to kind of fixate on the thing about the whale and how does it work with the whale and did he get swallowed and all of those deals. Well, unfortunately, when we spend so much attention on that, we probably, many of us, have never considered what is the actual message of Jonah. Y'all remember who Jonah was? What was his job? He was a prophet. He was a spokesperson for salvation in God. That was his job. And you remember how he ends up in the whale? God comes along and gives him a gem of a mission. A real nice gig if you're wanting to see the kingdom of God extended to the world. He said, I'm going to take you. And he got this whole group of people, the Ninevites. And they're as bad as bad can get. But I'm going to send you to them and they're going to be transformed. Because I want to see them reached. I want to see my kingdom extend there. I want to see grace come upon those people. Jonah, instead of doing what you would think a prophet of God would do, he gets on orbits and logs in and gets the quickest ticket to the opposite side of things, to Tarshish, headed that way. And that's where the whale comes in, by the way. And you remember what the whale was about? It really, I mean, he's in the belly of the whale, and there's some interesting parts to that book. But the whole point of the whale was to get him back, and the whale spits him out right outside of Nineveh. I mean, talk about a message, <laughs> trying to get through to a guy. Here's where I want you, Jonah. And he still grudgingly only tells him about the message. Ah, you might want to get some salvation. You might want to get some repentance and come to the Lord. Go, you know, if you want to. And the whole city erupts in a newfound relationship with God and understanding his mercy. And even at the end of the book, Jonah's still hacked off that they've come to faith. And Jonah's maybe an extreme example Maybe we're not quite to that point, but he is an example of what's often in our hearts. Our own self-righteousness, our own confidence as one who's inside, if you will, the group, 
And we forget that we're only inside because God has decided to bring us inside, has chosen to show us love and grace. Jonah forgot that. We do as well. And so we miss the opportunities that God gives us to love on the unlovely in our world. Tim Keller comments on it. You can find that in your worship guide if you want to read along with me. He sums it up this way. He says, A self-righteous person has a woefully inaccurate estimate of his or her own sin and how deep it goes. He or she also demonstrates a lack of knowledge of who God is. Don't understand ourselves. We don't understand God. Seeing neither his holiness, purity, or hatred of sin. The self-righteous person, contrary to what they may believe, is actually far from godly. Genuine growth and godliness takes place when people become more aware of their sin, not less so. Growth and godliness makes individuals more humble, more willing to associate with people with less perfect backgrounds. Self-righteousness has the opposite effect. We are called to seek the unrighteous. And so if we can begin, by God's grace, to put some of this self-righteousness out of our lives, to see ourselves change deeply, to understand the gospel of grace more fully for ourselves, then we can be used to seek the unrighteous. And when we think of that, I want to show you one other passage that directly relates to this, and it's in Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And I would invite you to turn there with me because I want to read a couple of these verses for us. Luke 15 begins in a similar place, really, to the passage we're looking at this morning. Luke 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors, and guess who? The sinners, were all drawing near to him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So this was a routine Jesus had to get in to explain this deal. Here he gives a much more lengthy explanation than in Mark. We don't have time to read through all of it. First illustration he gives is he said, you know, a shepherd with some sheep, he's got a hundred of them, he loses one, he goes out to find that lost sheep. Jesus is saying that's the business we ought to be in. Have you ever thought about that? It doesn't actually make sense to me. If you lost one, you'd say, I lost one, got 99, still here. I hate to go running out there and lose some more while the 99 are over here. But Jesus actually says, go get that sheep. He talks about a woman that loses a coin, and she looks around for a coin, and this is more about our attitude, what our attitude ought to be. When we see people around us, do we have a heart to judge them, or do we have a heart to see them come into the kingdom and rejoice? The woman who finds the coin, it says in verse 9, she says, rejoice with me because I found the coin that I lost. And then she says, it says, Jesus says, just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then there's this little old tale. It's one of the more familiar stories from the Bible. But that is uh, largely, uh, in our culture, misnamed. It's called the prodigal son. But if you read it well, and I commend to you uh, Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, that's all about these verses in Luke 15. If we read it carefully, we'll realize there's not one son that's needing God's grace and mercy. There's two 
in this passage. And you remember, if you're at all familiar with this story, that the younger son takes the father's inheritance, essentially looking at his father in the eye and saying, I wish you were dead so I could go ahead and have your money right now. The father, by some gracious means, gives that to him, that, those resources. The son goes, squanders it all, ends up in a pigsty, and realizes that he needs something. His right, self-righteousness has been broken down, and he sees a desperate need for the love and mercy of his earthly father. And the parallel to the heavenly father is obvious for us. In verse 21, we begin reading of Luke 15. And the son comes back to the father and said to him, Father... I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. There's another guy in this passage, though, isn't there? The older brother. He's not just the older brother and follows the typical older brother, younger brother pattern and being more obedient and being more faithful and the younger brother being a little bit more uh, frivolous and carefree, but the spiritual analogy is here as well. He's the older brother in the sense that his self-righteousness is almost overpowering. Look at verse 25 with me says now the older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant and he said to him the servant did your brother has come your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound but he was hungry But he was angry, I'm sorry, and refused to go in. His father came out. Notice the father comes out to both of the brothers. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and he is found. What keeps us from engaging and connecting in a deep way with those around us that need the grace and mercy of God? Folks, one of the worst things for us, one of the things that plagues us most is this barrier of self-righteousness that makes us think that we've got it all coming to us and causes us to forget that we are lost in and of ourselves. We need mercy and grace in and of ourselves. That Jesus came for us, the unrighteous and the sinners, and he desires to use us in the lives of those around us. Let's pray. Let's pray here in just a minute 
that God would be changing our hearts, that we'd understand the gospel in deeper and deeper ways in our lives, and so that we would actually connect with those who need the gospel instead of being such a barrier in between us. Let's pray that way. Oh, Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and lives, and we confess as we read these passages I know, Lord, I see so much of that older brother in me. Father, I pray that instead you would work in our hearts a desire, a passion, a longing to see those around us as those in need, as those who need your mercy, and not as those that we would judge or that we would use to prop ourselves up, Lord. Oh, Lord, you chose not to give us our rights. Our rights before you, Lord, without Christ, our condemnation, our separation from you. You've been so gracious to welcome us into your family. How, Lord, is it then that we pull the door closed behind us? Father, let not that be the case for us. Soften our hearts, Lord. Use us, we pray, as we are softened, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.